0: It's the 2nd of April, 2021. This is the Room Now Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, Executive Editor of RoomNow.com. HSP, ESRD, UPA, SAE. If you're a rheumatologist, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, you're probably not listening to the right podcast. Let's begin with a report of rheumatology's favorite drug, methotrexate. Which should you use? Should you use sub-Q? Should you use oral? I've always used oral, and then I occasionally use sub-Q. I know the data about the better absorption, 100% delivery, more toxicity with parenteral injectable uh, sub-Q methotrexate. But, you know, we use a lot of oral, and it works just fine in most people. I was shocked to find out mm, 10 years ago, more than that, that most of my pediatric rheumatology colleagues in Dallas and throughout the country... Prefer to give their kids with JIA sub Q methotrexate. Are they right? You know, I I don't know that that's really been well studied. Well, here's a study that actually did look at a fairly large cohort of 640 RA patients who either started sub Q or um, uh, oral methotrexate. And again, it was, I I believe, uh, the design of the trial was to prove which one is better. So this is a randomized um active control if you will study to look at the if it's superior or non-inferior when you use oral versus sub q so that's exactly what they did this study i think had an endpoint of 24 weeks or something along those lines and bottom line in the end there was no difference in the amount of disease activity or disease control with either sub q or oral um, which meant that it was basically non-inferior if anything maybe the oral methotrexate had fewer adverse events overall, 42% versus 52%, and that was significant. But a lot of that, as you know, with methotrexate is nuisance side effects. So here's what I do. I don't use really parenteral unless a patient can't take oral. Um, But for the most part, I use oral once a day up to 15 milligrams. When I'm at 15 milligrams or higher, I do split-dose oral. So I will then use three pills twice a day on Friday That'll be six pills for 15 milligrams. And I'm going to get better absorption when I do that. Same things if it's 20 milligrams. It's four pills twice a day on a Friday. And I'm going to get basically 90% absorption on that. Again, when you, once you get a 15 milligrams or higher, methotrexate and how it works and how much it's absorbed, is sort of a, a roll of the dice. So not leaving it up to luck, the UK has now approved a new therapy for stills disease, whether it's kids with systemic JIA or adults who have adult-onset stills disease. NICE, or the regulatory agency in the UK, has just approved Anakinra for first-line to- first biologic use in kids with systemic JIA or adults with adult-onset stills disease, but, big but, they must have failed a, du- a DMARD prior to getting the biologic. You know, that seems like a right move, a good cost-efficiency move, but you know what? If someone has systemic features of either stills disease in kids or adults you know methotrexate plaquenil azathioprine cyclosporin they don't work you know when you have the systemic features high fevers the rashes the pleuritis hepatosplenomegaly crazy crazy looking labs white counts of 25000 and acute phase reactants are off the chart that needs steroids and an IL-1 or an IL-6 inhibitor. So while I applaud them for making this move, I think that they should have had a proviso on there for how to treat systemic stills patients versus those who have chronic articular stills, which case you can use any DMARD you want, any biologic you want. Basically, at that point, you're treating RA. Jeff Sparks and colleagues published a nice study that I actually read prior to publishing on Room Now, and that's a nurse's health study that looks at the frequency of COPD in RA patients. Uh, and, and I think it's an interesting study. So they looked at 283 pre-RA patients, meaning that they, from their many thousands of patients, they found 283 patients who were going to ultimately go on to develop RA and follow them for 10 years prior to RA. And they had about three to one match controls. 20% of the pre-RA patients were ACP positive turns out that ACPA positivity increased, uh, was associated with an increased risk of both COPD, a threefold increased risk, and also asthma, um, and to a much lesser extent, but mainly COPD. There is this curious interplay between inflammatory lung disease and preclinical RA um, and um, RA itself. So uh, is that part and parcel of disease does that add to the, to the pathogenesis disease? I think it does. And we do know that both um, having ACPA and having COPD makes your patients with RA maybe a little bit worse, makes them more likely to have pneumonia and pulmonary complications. So there is this association um, with uh, COPD and restrictive airway disease in patients with, with RA. And it's possible that ACPA positivity is at the root of that. Um, and airway inflammatory disease may be a forerunner to actually developing um, articular rheumatoid arthritis, especially in ACPA-positive individuals. So speaking of lung, a nice study looked at from Spain looked at um, a collective experience from multiple centers on their use of abatacept in patients with RA and interstitial lung disease. So they pooled their patients, 363 patients, and they were either treated with abatacept alone or abatacept in combination with either methotrexate or another drug other than methotrexate, so another DMARD, if you will. And it turns out that they all did well it was with, with regard to their clinical improvement by, as measured by disease activity score, um, as measured by their lung function with uh, FVC, DLCOs, and even chest CTs. Those were stabilized in patients who were started on abatacept. It didn't say whether why they were started on abatacept, but they were on abatacept. They had ILD and RA, the only difference here was that there was a steroid sparing effect seen when you use the combination, that the patients who were on abatacept alone without a DMARD, without methotrexate, were more likely to be on higher doses of steroids going forward. And that could have been steroids for their lung or steroids for their joints. Point is that if you're going to go so far as to use abatacept, you probably should be using it in combination, whether it's for the control RA or to hopefully affect the outcomes of RAILD, a difficult to treat complication of RA. An interesting study from the journal Rheumatology looks at a retrospective experience from Australia, the great down under, with 267 adult patients with henox Schonlein purpura, henceforth known as IgA vasculitis. Um, overall, these patients had a lot of GI involvement, lot, as you would imagine, some articular involvement and renal disease. But uh, what I found surprising about this particular um, large cohort report was that these patients have a significantly higher rate of comorbidity. uh, And it was like almost double that what you see in patients who, uh, did not have this so uh, who's their control here let me think about it a second but anyway higher comorbidity scores that's a charleston comorbidity index 2.6 versus 1.5 they had a higher risk of serious infections an overall risk that was eight times higher if you were uh, had a diagnosis of hsp you slice and dice it with other provisos it's still higher at two fold higher but as high as eight fold higher and they also had a higher risk of death, a twofold higher risk of death when compared to the general population. So having HSP is not necessarily a benign condition in adults. Uh, I found this nice abstract, albeit six months late, from the American Society of Nephrology that looked at um, an open-label, collective, real-world experience of end-stage renal disease patients who are on uh, dialysis, most of which, I think 80% of which, were on hemodialysis, 136 of them, and they needed to be treated with IV peglodicase. Um, the down, there was no real downside here. Um, more than two-thirds of the cases, the peglodicase was prescribed by rheumatologists. Um, these were mostly males um, with an average age of 57 years. Uh, and, uh, and interestingly, you know, they received the, the, the peglodicase for up to a median, actually not up to, but a median of 13 infusions. Uh, without any particular mention of bad outcomes here. So uh, this is a difficult population to manage. End-stage renal patients on dialysis, gout can be severe, gout can be really bad, um, and they may or may not be on other drugs that interfere with your usual gout therapy. In this case, the use of pegloticase seems to have made sense. Um, I can't say I've done this myself, but I would do this in the future. Meta-analysis of 32 patients looked at the risk of stroke, in your patients who have inflammatory or autoimmune disease, specifically this cohort looked at a large number of patients who either had RA or PSA or I want to say the other inflammatory arthritis in here was gout. Uh, it was, and enclosing spondylitis for that matter. Overall, patients with inflammatory arthritis have a one and a half fold higher risk or actually a 45% higher risk of either ischemic stroke or hemorrhagic stroke, and this was true for RA, 38% higher risk, ankle spondylitis, 49% higher risk, psoriatic arthritis, 33% higher risk, and gout, 40% higher risk. Interestingly, most of the risk of stroke in patients with inflammatory arthritis was higher in patients who are younger than age 45, not the elderly. So that's the population you may want to be on the lookout for. Uh, SAE anti-SAE antibodies, not serious adverse event. What is SAE antibodies and why are we talking about that in the context of dermatomyositis? Lisa Lisa Christopher Stein and colleagues um, are running a national basically registry or database of uh, suspected myositis patients. In doing um, analysis of over 2,000 suspected myositis patients, they found that 1% of their population nearly 1% tested positive for SAE antibodies. That stands for SUMO activating enzyme. SUMO. What does SUMO stand for? Small ubiquitin-like modifier activating enzyme. That's a mouthful. Why do I need to know about this? I'm a rheumatologist. I don't know anything about this. Should I know about this? Well, it is 1% of all suspected myositis patients. Uh, It could be tested for. These patients present first with rash, then later with myositis, uh, often with a lot of extra, extra muscular involvement. But the, like some of the other syndromes we've seen, there is an increased risk, a small increased risk for cancer in this subset. So that's probably the cancer uh, hook here might be the main reason to know about SAE antibodies in dermatomyositis. Um, our last report has to do with upadacitinib. Uh, New, England, New England Journal reported this week about upadacitinib. A clinical trial, a very large clinical trial, 1,700 patients with active psoriatic arthritis who were randomized to receive one of two doses of upadacitinib, UPA-15, UPA-30, versus standard dose of adalimumab, which is 40 milligrams every other week, versus placebo. Their primary endpoint was at week 12, and yes, UPA outperformed placebo significantly. 15 milligrams UPA had an ACR-20 of 71%. 30 milligrams UPA had an ACR20 of 78%, placebo response rate was 36%. Wait, there was another group that was adalimumab that had a placebo uh, an ACR20 response rate of 65%. Thus, UPA at any dose is more significant than placebo. Uh, UPA 15 milligrams is roughly equal to adalimumab 40 milligrams every other day. Every other day. That's 71% versus 65%. But the dose that's not approved for UPA, 30 milligrams, was superior to adalumumab. That would be 78.5% versus 65%. There was a fair amount of some hepatic enzyme elevations in this trial, more than you might have wanted to see, um, uh, uh, both for the 30 and 15 milligram group. Again, you do need to check for LFTs uh, and CBCs um, quarterly in patients, I think, that are on JAK inhibitors, not just UPA, but all JAK inhibitors. I do twice a year. I'll check for lipids and or CPK because you have this low-level CPK emia in some patients. I haven't yet seen a really good case of myositis associated with JAK inhibitors. But again, we're seeing an expanded use of JAK inhibitors now in psoriatic arthritis. Tofacitinib is approved. Uh, Upadacitinib is up for approval in the next quarter by the FDA. Watch for that information. We're going to end with two cases from back talk that you can, where you can send a question to me in a room now, or present a little case. Uh, Dr. Mark Cruciani sends in a, a case uh, about or concern about women who he sees in consultation who are ANA positive and have complaints of alopecia. Um, ANAs can be low positive, can be high positive, and the question is, what does he do with it? Should he send them all to dermatology, etc.? I think it's important to have a discussion about alopecia with your patients. Many women will have hair loss. Um, is it pathologic? Is it, is it associated with lupus? Uh, lupus can have just general hair loss, can have patchy hair loss, can have scarring alopecia, which is what goes along with uh, DLE, discoid lupus, or non-scarring alopecia, which is a criterion. For the new ACR criteria. As you know, the new ACR criteria require you to have an ANA and then a bunch of features for which you get points, and you need to have 10 points. So, Mark, your patient who is ANA positive with alopecia, she gets two points for non scarring alopecia. She's eight more points away from having a diagnosis of lupus, and this is about what we really see. Often, these patients do not have lupus, and it's your job to look for the other eight points, other features of lupus, to say whether the patient has. SLE or not, and then if the patient is bothered by their hair loss, send them to dermatologist to see if this is telogen effluvium or some other diagnosis that I know nothing about that could cause alopecia. My bottom line, I learned from some very smart rheumatologists, uh, dermatologists, Rick Sondheimer and others, say that when patients have hair, spontaneous hair loss, um, meaning they wake up in the morning and there's hair on the pillow enough that you got to brush it off, that's pathologic. Hair in the shower, hair on the brush, hair on your clothes. Unless I can see big patches of hair loss, I don't really care. Uh, It's not going to be pathologic. There are two things that get my attention, uh, which I'm going to do something about right quick, as we say in Texas. One, spontaneous hair loss. It's on the pillow every morning. Again, I don't care about brush. Don't care about the shower. Don't care about your coat. Or two, when the patient says, I thought I had a problem, but my hairdresser said, what's going on with your hair? I'll listen to that because that's someone who usually knows that person's head of hair intimately and can spot either patches of loss or significant loss that needs medical attention. So that's my approach to hair loss and ANA positivity. We got a, another case from uh, Dr. Hussein Babani. Uh, let's listen to what Hussein has to say. Hi, Dr. Kush. My name is Hussein. I'm a rheumatologist from Kuwait. I have a lady who presented to me with bony prominence over the sternoclavicular joint. She has minimal pain. She denies any history of skin rash, acne or psoriasis. We did MRI of the sternoclavicular joint which showed erosions with synovitis and the radiologist suggested Safu syndrome. As I said, She has minimal symptoms at this point, but the prominence is annoying her. So at this point, would you recommend starting DMARTS or just to uh, start with a local steroid injection? Thank you. Hussein. thanks for that case. Very interesting. The real issue is here, what's the differential diagnosis of uh, sternoclavicular arthritis, especially with bony enlargement? Um, He did, this patient does not have a diagnosis. He's wondering if it means the patient has the Sappho syndrome. In my experience, um, patients with isolated sternoclavicular arthritis, when it's new and acute, is septic, 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 and infectious otherwise. Uh, This is common in IV drug abusers. Uh, It's common with systemic staph uh, infections. You can, but also you get weird bugs there, including pseudomonas, especially in IV drug abusers. But Occasionally, mycobacterial infections. Occasionally, brucella. Brucella is a really, especially in your country. I'm sure you have brucellosis. This patient should have um, an antigen test for brucella, Uh, and you know, think about infectious. So this patient sounds like it's chronic because it's enlarged, um, but there's no other symptoms. So you have to think of indolent infection. I would test for TB. I would check for brucella. I might aspirate the joint if possible. I think imaging is is really important. You did an image. If you want to look for erosions um, to say this is an erosive arthritis as opposed to a degenerative process, um, CT scan is probably a little bit better than MRI in assessing SC arthritis. But both should tell you, should look for whether or not there's erosions there because maybe in that situation, injection and or systemic therapy would be appropriate. But again, she doesn't have a systemic uh, arthropathy. I don't know that I could give her a systemic therapy for a local problem. My uh, workup would probably be to aspirate the joint, but I wanna know why your, your, your radiologist says that this is the Sappho syndrome. Sappho stands for synovitis, acne, uh, pustulosis, osteitis, and hyperostosis. This is an inflammatory condition that affects amphiarthrosis, sliding joints, most notably the sternoclavicular joint, the manubriosternal sternal joint, the AC joints, sometimes costochondral joints, sliding joints, and you get an inflammatory synovitis there. This has a remote relationship, and, and and I'm not even sure it really is patho- pathogenically aligned with spondoarthritis, but they're often talked about together. Most patients who have SAPHO do not have spondoarthritis. Actually, in the differential diagnosis of an isolated sternoclavicular joint, we said infection. We said... Um, Sappho, there are others. Rarely could this be something like sarcoidosis or reactive arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. Even rheumatoid has presented here. But again, there's other evidence of other joints involved to give you those other diagnoses. Um, so if there's a- a- osteitis, then that's why your radiologist would have suggested Sappho. If it's just osteitis, I still think you... Uh, may need to do an aspiration there or maybe even a bone biopsy there if that's really bothering the patient. I would seldom send these patients to surgery. Uh, I don't think you're going to get any remodeling or significant improvement. She's having no pain. Injecting a steroid there is not going to help what is bony and large. She may need a bone biopsy. But if there's fluid in there, then I would aspirate, culture it, think about the infections we talked about. Um, But based on what you said, I'm not really inclined to want to give her a DMARD. I wish I could help you more, but such cases are often difficult. Uh, That's it for this week on uh, Room Now. Starting in the next two weeks, you're going to start seeing a lot of Room Now live content, uh, including my lecture on RA and pneumonia, which goes back to some of these pulmonary reports we heard in today's talk. Tune in for more next week on the podcast.